It is my delight for the Rabbi Laura podcast today that my colleague, friend and very, very much admired columnist and also member of the House of Lord, Conservative member, Daniel Finkelstein is here. He's also a liberal Jew. He's a member of Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogues. And my colleagues will be so pleased with me that I did that. I get a massive woo <laughs> for that. And he has just published Everything in Moderation. William Collins published it at the end of August. So this is part of his virtual book tour. So imagine you are sitting in, I don't know, nice big water stones in Piccadilly. And yes. there are hundreds of people lining up for you to sign their book. So I suppose one of my first questions would be, if you were sitting in Waterstones in Piccadilly, which bits would you choose to read? You should don't read them now, but like the topic. I decided the right way to start the book was with a description of my own background. I've been the comment editor of the Times, and when I was comment editor of the Times, I always used to tell the people who wrote for me, it didn't just matter what they thought. It also had to matter to the reader that it was them that thought it. It had to be authentic. It had to link to their own story and their own uh, basic attitudes. And I follow very much that rule as a columnist. So I decided I needed to follow it as a book compiler as well. So Everything in Moderation is a compilation of my columns, and in some ways, the strongest section of the book is a section comes later, which is called People, where I've got profiles of Muhammad Ali and of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and David Bowie and Brian Epstein. That, that is in some ways the most varied and exciting bit of the book. But I think the book wouldn't have its soul without this beginning section. And there are two essays in there that I think are particularly important. One of them, when my mother died and another when my father died. And the way that they shaped me is everywhere in the book. Indeed, the title of it, although it, it refers to some extent to my politics, was actually a statement that my mother would make more about crisps than about politics. <laughs> so even the pun in the title reflects her sense of humour. And did you eat crisps in moderation? I don't, sadly. I think that's probably why the injunction was necessary. <laughs> I think everything in moderation is something that I find very difficult to obey when it comes to food. Mm, yeah, I also not brilliant at that. Okay, so I'm going to just come back to your mum before we go more into the book. Sure. So one of the things that you've written about is that she was at school with Anne Frank. So she was Dutch, like date my husband's family. No, so it was actually a little bit different. So slightly close to that, but slightly different. So my mum was born in Berlin. As, was her, as were her two sisters, and they were refugee families. So that was the same as the Franks' story, and they were in the same part of Amsterdam and belonged to the same synagogue and went also to Montessori schools. It was actually my aunt Ruth, the older of the three girls, who was in the same class as Margot. And if you go to the Anne Frank house, you can see the class list where all the Jews were required to be listed, and one of those is Margot Frank, and another is my aunt Ruth Wiener. My mother was they had a very similar story and they were in Vesterbork and in Belsen like the Frank girls and indeed my mum and her sister Ruth saw Anne and Margot arrive in Belsen and they have a little pencil notation in my aunt's diary that, that they saw them arrive because they were in different parts of the camp Belsen was divided into different parts of the camp depending on your exchange worthiness effectively which what do you mean? Very, 
Well, Belson was set up actually as a as an exchange camp originally. Where, where by the time Anne arrived, it was simply a place where people who were leaving other camps because of the advancing Allied and uh, Allied troops from different directions ended up in Belson just because that was in t- in the inside interior. So they had to go that way, and they ended up there. And so. That's one of the reasons why everybody starved to death at the end in Belson and died of disease. It wasn't designed to accommodate the number of people that came and the people who were running it by that point, as well as being completely heedless of anybody's welfare, were also incompetent. And so the whole camp completely collapsed. But my mother was there for a different reason. They had Paraguayan passports. And this, despite the fact that we have no Paraguayan relations and no relation, no link with Paraguay or Latin America at all. The reason that they achieved these Paraguayan passports was because they had been forged for them in an operation conducted by a group of Polish exiles in Switzerland. The Polish embassy in Switzerland obtained, it was the government in exile by that point, obtained for what it turned out to be thousands of people, fake Paraguayan documentation. And this documentation was used uh, first to get them to Belson, otherwise they would definitely have gone to the gas chambers, as my mother's aunt and uncle and cousin did. They instead had this passport which allowed them to be eligible to be in Belson and then to be swapped out just before Belson then itself collapsed in a, in a sort of disastrous extermination effectively of, of, of people through disease. And this miracle, in fact, I've only really understood properly since the book was completed. So in the last few months, the details of this rescue attempt by these uh, exiled Poles has become, uh, has been made apparent some new historical work by, by actually some Polish diplomats. And the interesting thing is that the, the, the man, Alexander Vadosh, the ambassador who was responsible for coordinating this, as it turns out, went to school only one year apart in the same school as my paternal grandfather in Poland, of two families which I had previously thought had no link whatsoever. Wow. Now, my my father's story, which is also relevant to the book, very much so, is that he was uh, part of the hundreds of thousands of Poles who were uh, shipped to Siberia or, in his case, the Kazakhstan-Siberian border by Stalin as part of an effort to destroy the Polish elite. And the combination of my father's story, he nearly died in that winter after he was exiled, my father's story and my mother's story is, as you can imagine, to breed in my family and in me a complete neuralgia about all forms of extremism, whether from right yeah, or from and left. Me. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think I think it is, to be honest, the experience of our community, that I would argue it's the experience of our community everywhere, that we, we have a lot to gain from the maintenance of a healthy, moderate, progressive, liberal law-abiding political democracy and it is to the maintenance of that and the opposition to alternative doctrines and methods that my book is devoted in its different ways and arguments. Mm. So I've discussed this very often because I I just have an intense allergy to extremism and no I do really love the word neuralgia that you used. There's something in an extremist view I suppose I don't just like dislike it intellectually. I know it make it endangers me. 
Yes. And I think that's when I was listening to you and you know, so many Jews, you just, we're one second from the Holocaust, half a yes. millisecond, even though other people think we're not. And it does something healthy and unhealthy to us. So in a way, I, I don't, I think see some people as reacting with extremism because we are one second away from the Holocaust. And I see, I think some of that is in Israel. Yes. One thing that I certainly wouldn't argue and don't is that, you know, my every judgment is the only moderate judgment. <laughs> every, and every alternative to mine is a one-way ticket. Yeah, it's a one-way <laughs> ticket to Siberia. I don't argue Oy that. Vey. My parents certainly wouldn't want me to argue that. It's only one take on it. But I think the, yeah. the one thing that I do think does have to be protected is the rule of law. And that by, by that, I mean law to every individual. So there's a section in the book on my concern about miscarriages of justice. I mean, you and I have obviously discussed that too. And the idea of kind of mob assumptions about guilt and innocence and those sorts of things. I, I get very worried with that phrase. The, you know, the, the jury of the people or, and I just think that's... Oh, yes. So I, I do think that while I, you know, while I certainly agree, accept that different, you know, different moderates can have a sharply different view about George Osborne's austerity policy, or even indeed the whole bent of the Conservative Party after 2005, where I think it's much more difficult to uh, accommodate alternative uh, view is when it kind of parts company with the law and my problem with a lot and I put this in the there is an essay in the book on this my problem with a lot of left far more further left thinking is it's sort of merely abstract nature so I try to be quite concrete and pragmatic and look what the next step is rather than to a leap into the dark and I would also argue actually on the right there's all sorts of that sort of millennial theorizing as well. Yeah, it's funny for Jews, where it sounds like utopia, it's anxiety provoking. Mm -hmm. And you're, and I, I think that's very wise to talk about the abstract, because you don't have to justify the abstract. You don't have to quantify the abstract. You don't have to talk about the budget or the plan or the accountabilities. So you can reject the concrete without coming up with an answer. Yes. I, I think one of my, you know, one of the most important things to understand is that for every view there's a counter view so this actually isn't in the book but but let me give you an example in 2010 George Osborne made the decision that he had that he was going to to remove child benefit from high rate taxpayers and a number of newspapers pointed out a problem with this which was which is that if there were two families both of whom earned slightly less than the higher rate threshold they would both be eligible for child benefit because neither of them were higher rate taxpayers but it's possible that the two of them together would earn more money than one person whose salary was the only family salary and was just above the higher rate tax threshold and so this particular problem seemed to you know suggest there was nothing you could do about the child benefit being paid to higher rate taxpayers that wasn't grotesquely unfair. On the other hand, it was also grotesquely unfair to be paying child benefits to higher rate taxpayers, given all the other priorities. And you had to make a choice. There wasn't one policy that was right and one policy that was wrong. There were two policies and you had to balance them. 
And that is true of lots and lots of different things. It's true of every issue of public spending. It's not that you couldn't, for example, prevent all homelessness by simply throwing open everybody's home to every person who wanted to walk into it. But that would have other problems, which we can immediately see. You know, one of the things that suffuses the book and my thinking is everything is always a choice. It's always a balance. It's always, therefore, a compromise between different users of resources, different political ideas, how you solve them. Everything has to be practical. You know, I spent a lot of my time with people making reasonable objections to things government do or don't do, which don't account for the fact that there may be problems if you do do it and problems if you don't do it, because they don't think about the fact that everything with resources is a balance. I wonder what people's anxiety is when they hear the word compromise and they feel, I will lose out. Compromise is, including there's a very interesting Talmudic concept which sees compromise as bad in one, in certain places, not in general, because the whole dynamic of the Talmud is compromised through voting, majority vote. But I suppose compromise for some people is, and it's what defines extremism, is they believe it's selling out. So if you believe compromise is selling out, that is one of the things that takes you off to the right or to the left. I've never been a big one on the selling out. So when I was a kid, you know, it always used to be the thing about, did a, had a group sold out and a pop <laughs> group sold out? And I always thought, well, that's a good thing, you know. Um, I've never found reaching a mass consumer audience or pleasing a lot of people or I've never found that to be a much of an insult. <laughs> yeah, yes, I know. I would love to please a lot of people rather than annoy them. It's absolutely true. I was thinking about the two things that you balanced, which is politics and journalism. Politics, one of the places that I read that it got sparked by Watergate. Yes. So, so and before you yeah. carry on, yes. some people who are listening to this may not know what Watergate was. <laughs> Yes. So will you start by explaining it? Of course. So uh, let me say where it comes into my story. When I was young, I'm a big football fan. And when I was small, I used to go to read the paper because I had the football in it. And once I'd finished that, my father rather cleverly, you know, he had no interest in football at all. He, he rather cleverly encouraged me to kind of turn the paper over and read what was on the front. And so <laughs> I did. And that was around the time, as well as the football. I never lost the football interest. But, the, but that was around the time that... There were burglars who had broken into the Watergate complex where the Democrats had their headquarters in the advance. And, and it, was, it was the Democratic National Committee in advance of the 1972 presidential elections. And these burglars were traced back effectively to being employees of the Nixon White House it, 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 or the campaign to re-elect the president. It, it was Certainly there were people who were directly involved in their employment who worked in the Nixon White House and it turned out also to be part of a wider programme of such illegal acts. And because they were already quite enmeshed in these illegal acts, it became impossible for them to admit any of them and therefore they started to lie and the lie went all the way up to the president. So that was that was the Watergate incident. And as you can imagine, it was completely compelling. People always, you know, conspiracy theories are often incredibly exciting, except for the fact that they're not true. This was a real conspiracy and it actually happened. I, I still read about it all the time. I've read lots. I read recently, not very long ago, you know, in the last six months, I read a, a book by John Dean, who was one of the people who went to jail over Watergate. 
but turned against Nixon. And he's written a fantastic book with all the tapes because Nixon taped all of his discussions. So that was one of the base on which I became interested in politics. And I, and I started down the road to this book really as a politician. My parents were Labour and I was kind of, you know, as a youth, I suppose that's who I supported. But when I, when I, I went to university, I joined the SDP and eventually became, you know, involved in the Conservative Party. Just before I joined the Times, I'd already begun to work with George Osborne and with George Osborne and one or two of his friends, one of whom was David Cameron, I would meet all the time to discuss how the Conservative Party could change. And I basically ended up at the Times as an opinion writer, as a leader writer, but with two things. One is an appreciation of how politics worked from the inside. I'd run for Parliament twice by the time I joined the paper, once for the SDP and once for the Conservative Party. And the second was these political connections, who not that long after I joined the Times, three or four years, then became the Chancellor of the Exchequer, or Shadow Mm. Chancellor, and leader of the Conservative Party, and then eventually Prime Minister. And so I decided that because I'd worked for the Conservative Party, been a Conservative candidate, had all these contacts, I couldn't, I shouldn't try and pretend to my readers that wasn't who I was. Some columnists choose to do that. They're not really pretending, but they're sort of saying, you know, we eschew all that connection and we don't have that. I've chosen to go the other way because I don't think it, realistically, I've got much alternative. And, and I've just been very open to people about it. That has both a strength and probably a weakness, too, of my writing. I think the truth is, when you build up political connections, you both gain hugely from those connections because you learn a lot about, you know, I learned a lot about how the budgets were working and all the political dilemmas that David Cameron had with his government directly from the Prime Minister and then later from Theresa May as well. That was hugely informative and meant that my writing is rooted in a proper understanding of how politics works from the inside and political perspectives. But at the same time, obviously, it means, you know, you're connected with David Cameron, you people, you know, you know him and you're sympathetic to him. So those are, you gain and you lose. And I thought the best thing I could do was make sure people knew that and then they could make a judgment for themselves about, you know, how much weight to put on the things that I told them, given those things, knowing that I knew things, uh, that I understood things from the inside, but knowing that I also had personal sympathies. So it's interesting because you said, I didn't really have a choice. I couldn't have done it other way. But actually, I think it is indicative of integrity because there is something that sticks when someone clearly comes from a very from a specific party political view but doesn't own it, and they're a journalist. I think it's yeah. actually the only way to sort of I mean, get away weirdly, with it. Weirdly. So my view is, not, is often very different from the Conservative Party's view, particularly at the moment. But even when David or George were in charge, you know, I didn't always agree with everything that they did. I tend to a kind of more liberal perspective, for example. And, you know, I disagree with David strongly about the European Convention of Human Rights, where I thought his view was completely wrong. But people don't, people assume that you simply support everything that the party supports. But I'd rather they started from that incorrect judgment than pretending to them that I don't have those I didn't have those connections when I clearly did so I just didn't think that would that would have been you know a sensible thing I think it's also the way you wear your Judaism when you're a journalist it's integrated in who you are like your history like your friend like you said hang on a minute you can't start before I 
you know, you look at the at the history, it's who we are. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. When I when I was just a reader of paper newspapers, I used to think that when a journalist would write, I don't know, I, I gave us an example of a Jewish chronicle, a journalist would write about how they'd hurt their foot. I would think, oh, that's a very inventive play on injury. And only when I actually got to work at the Times did I realise they must have actually hurt themselves. <laughs> because people, everyone sort of thinks the whole thing's all a bit of a kind of sham. But actually, all good journalism really comes from truth and people's own experiences. Otherwise, it's rubbish, really. I do think you can't fake who you are if you want to be a successful columnist. Now, in my case, that can be a bit of a problem because... The truth about who I am is, you know, that I can see a lot of times both sides of the question. I'm probably quite a sort of bland person from the suburbs as well. So that is just who I am. I can't pretend I'm anything else. And sometimes I look at the verve with which people say something that I regard as total nonsense or describe their behaviour in which uh, which I can't imagine. I mean, if anyone reads the astonishing memoirs of Barbara Amiel, in the Daily Mail is running it at the moment, but it's absolutely incredible. Can you say who she was? Uh, thing, yes. And Barbara Amy was a successful Canadian journalist and editor of Canadian papers who came mm-hmm. to this country, became a columnist for The Times, actually, and then, and later, I think The Sunday Times too, and then was also married to Conrad Black, the who then owned The Telegraph, and then was involved, obviously, in Conrad Black's big crash where he went to jail which she still says was wrong. But when you read that, you just think I, her whole social milieu and the attitudes, her attitudes to people, and actually, frankly, I should say it's because it's in the book, to sex and those kind of things are just leave me completely open-mouthed. And I... Because? I, I just, well, I, people have to read it. I mean, I can't really say it on a podcast. It's just extraordinary. Just, just the whole... Because it's permissive. Well, it's just loose in a way that I right. just am not. I mean, I, I'm... I'm I'm complete. I'm just saying. I read it and I thought, well, it's very interesting. If you are like her and you're willing to say those kind of things about your private life and you're will you have those kind of social attitudes towards other people, which are sort of quite open about her her own social climbing in a way that's just astonishing. In some ways, quite off putting, but in other ways, you th- you marvel at her sort of openness. But I I'm just not like that, and I can't pretend to be like that. And I suppose. It's both an advantage and a disadvantage as a columnist. But you're stuck with who you are is the point I'm trying to make. And the yeah. book the book the book is and you'll see that, you know, every on every page of that book is who I am, right? Every column that I write is really, you know, my, my friend Phil Collins always describes it as kind of, you know, people's politics are completely autobiographical and that's true. Yeah, well I think that's why lots of people I think the journalists that I like the most, you feel like you know them. And I think when you, when I read your stuff, the reason that I love it is written beautifully, but it's also, it's true. So even if I disagree with things, I'm like, well, that's his truth and it comes from a place in his life and his experience. And you say it and other people will hide behind things, so don't. If I was a person deliberating about buying a book, why do you think I should buy your book? Is it on Audible as well? Yes, and on and on oh. Kindle. Well, look, I'm very oh, excited. Show it off! <laughs> show it off! I hope that it provides a lot of varied entertainment. So, 
I'm quite proud of the sections on the rules of politics and rules of history, which I think make some durable points. And I think hopefully people will find the profiles that people I mentioned, insightful Walt Disney, Gary Becker, the Nobel Prize, when lots of different people, and there's an interview with George Martin, the Beatles producer as well, in there. I hope people will find that entertaining. And I hope in places they'll find it funny. So what people have told me is they, they quite enjoy... They read a bit and then they go and do other things. They can they can come back to it because it's obviously yes. columns. What I've, the big danger of the columns? There are two dangers, right? One is that in publishing all your columns together, people read them and think, "I've begun to work out how this guy did it, and it's all the same." Oh, and right. Stephen Bush, my, my the 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 New Statesman political editor who reviewed it for our paper, because you had to get someone independent to review it. He said he, he was worried that that would happen, but he was, he didn't think it did. And I had another review on Conservative Home that said the same thing. So I think that was a danger that people would sort of feel, God, this is I quite like this one column, but every column is the same. And I don't think you'll find that. The other the big danger is that you'll think, why on earth would I want to read about something that happened in 2008, right? And now it's a completely different political world. I've tried not to include columns, which for all their other merits, really only had a relevance to the time when they were written. Mm. So hopefully people will read it and think, okay, I can see the correspondence between that and the point being made here is a bit more of a durable one. So I'm hoping people will, I've had a very good reaction so far and people obviously are polite, you know, friends and all that, but I've had quite nice reviews. So I'm, I've got a reasonable degree of confidence in it. It's a book of columns, so that has its kind of advantages and its limitations, but I think it's a good book and I, you know, Brilliant. people seem to agree. Well, I'm looking, I'm um, at the moment chairing the Wingate Prize. So I'm in the middle of 46 books for the shortlist and then none wow. other, probably 20. Yeah. And if, so I'm completely, your book is sitting on my Kindle. We have a, like a Kindle club, but it's, you know, I need to get through lots of books about the Holocaust oh, no. first. It's unbelievably disproportionate. And I was thinking as you were talking, what a shame it's, it's you know, it would be lovely to have, there. Are, there is no book on that list. And the Wingate Prize is about sort of, Judaism, not just Judaism, but your columns would be perfect for it for next year, by the way, to submit it. Right. You know, explaining Judaism and Jews and Jewish writer to the general public. But there is none which is similar than the ones I've read because we divide into groups. And I think having the capacity to go in and out of things, because I've published three months ago a book on resilience, which is in 365 bits. It's a diary. It's not a diary. You should use it as a diary. And I think that people have said to me, oh, I do like the dipping in and out thing. And it's actually a gift rather than saying, okay, you need to read a whole long scroll here. Yeah, you I really think it's lovely to, to have. That, yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I think that's great. So I wanted to ask you, and it's an interesting phenomenon coming really in juxtaposition to everything in moderation, is a phenomenon that I'm concerned about and I'm interested in because I also understand it, but I'm also wary about it, talking about having two arguments, is around cancel culture. And as you know, I'm writing something at the moment about it and it's taking me longer than anything I've ever written. One piece is taking me so far a month and I keep on writing it and then listening and changing and I'm going to take my time. And I think the reason I'm scared is I don't want to get it wrong because I don't want to be cancelled. So cancel culture, actually... So I'd love you to define how you see cancel culture, because I think in the definition, and I'd love to know what your thoughts are about it. So this is, in my view, largely a matter of proportion. It cannot be the case that we don't 
ever hold anybody to account for anything they say, however outrageous. Mm. And it and sometimes people say things that are so outrageous, they may even lead one to question their professional standing, or they may behave in a way that does that. And it's reasonable that that should happen. It always has happened, and it always will happen. But I think I've got a number of things that I am concerned about now. The first is that that always has to happen with a degree of, first of all, respect for the diversity of opinion, so that where it is not necessary that somebody be dismissed, for example, from their job for expressing an opinion, it is necessary that they not be. It's very important that people in the commercial world feel free to enter into political debate without feeling that a single misstep, a single incorrect view, I mean, is it, or what I would regard as incorrect view, or a single view that somebody else finds offensive should lead them to be removed from their position. This is particularly true in, in the trans debate. And the reason I say that is that I, I have a view that's un, I've discovered sort of unusual from my political perspective that is not, in fact, conservatism, but more sort of centrist perspective. And in my age group, I, I'm pretty much with the with the tr- what's called the trans lobby, but I am essentially for an extremely strong policy of trying to ensure equality for transgender people and to recognise the massive pressure and discrimination they have faced and the need to end that discrimination. So I am basically on that side of this argument. However, we haven't finished that debate in a way that allows one to say definitively, my side of the argument is the only moral position and everybody else who disagrees with it is a transphobic person who needs to be cancelled. And that's an example of a political argument that people have to be allowed to have with a degree of freedom, even when they say things which, in my opinion, are offensive and unnecessary and reflect a kind of fear of trans people that's, that, in my opinion, is a sort of unreasonable and prejudiced. So we simply can't do that, you know, move that far. Then there's a third thing, which is we have to be able to allow people to make mistakes as well, to say things which other people don't like, which on reflection aren't that well thought through or do reflect prejudice, but they hadn't really thought it through or they've changed their mind. And that's just about human forgiveness. So this debate about cancel watchers is all a bit messy, but I think much of it is about trying to have a sort of degree of generosity and understand the value of free exchange underneath it. It, it cannot be the case that we're saying no, nothing that anybody ever says merits. Well, here, let me give you this a very good example, because the lady who last week admitted she's a professor of African-American studies And she last week admitted that she'd been pretending to be African-American and wasn't, right? And she she said... (laughs) Sorry, one minute. I'm just reacting. That passed me by. Right, no. Okay. Okay. So she was a professor. She's written, I think, a very well-received, very well-reviewed book on the subject. And then she wrote an article saying, I believe in cancel culture and you should cancel me. And I did actually think her behaviour was completely egregious. And I'm personally very sympathetic because some people get themselves into stupid situations. Fraudsters do this, by the way. They start a fraud 
and they then become almost the biggest victim of it themselves. The thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger and they can't get out of it. But I'm sympathetic, but it's still fraudulent. And so was her behaviour. And there has to be an accounting for it. And, you know, I don't know exactly how serious her behaviour was. I only have her account for it, so it's difficult to judge it. But clearly you're going to want to make some sort of judgment about the things that she said in professional settings, the extent to which it affected her work. That seems to me to be a reasonable basis for making someone for accountability and judgment. Sometimes, however, somebody expresses on their Twitter account a view about transgender rights or race or Black Lives Matter, which may or may not be a view that I share, but which I think does have to be treated with more, you know, with a greater sense of kind of generosity and proportion. And you have to, not every statement that someone makes that is offensive is also, as people often say, makes me feel unsafe. I think, you know, it does make some people some in some circumstances feel unsafe, but we have to balance off that feeling of unsafetyness with another feeling, which is people can't safely say anything. That would be a disaster as well. That's not the position, but it would be a disaster if it becomes the position. So I think the whole debate on what makes the cancel culture debate so difficult, what makes your task so difficult, is that it is in the end about a sense of generosity and proportion, which Mm -hmm. we're not all very good at. I'm not very good at either. And it is also, by the way, quite difficult in the following sense, which is the policy that you might wish to apply to the individual, which may be harsh and judgmental, Mm. may be not the best policy to apply to the whole population because it has a chilling effect. So each individual person may deserve a treatment that isn't a very good idea if applied to an entire population. And statistical thinking is very important in these kind of arguments as well. Can you just elaborate on that? What do you yeah. mean by So that? what I'm saying is that you may look at an individual and think that comment is unacceptable. Uh, they need to apologise and withdraw for it. They ought not to be on the board of this or that charity, right? And then someone says, well, they should be on the board of a charity. And they say, well, are you really defending their homophobic comment, right? Or their opposition to gay marriage? Well, I don't defend their opposition to gay marriage, right? But while it may not do much harm for this person to be held accountable for their individual view by being removed from a charity that, for example, helps gay people uh, because they expressed a view 10 years ago. And if you have an argument about that individual person, you can certainly stack up the idea that they ought to resign as a trustee or whatever it happens to be. This is a completely fictitious example I'm giving here. At the same time, if you applied that to everybody, you would have a massive chilling effect on what anybody ever says, tweets, how they involve themselves. So there's a difference between the policy that's optimal when you're dealing with a single case and the overall culture. That's why the culture bit of cancel culture is very important. So sometimes the policy you might wish to apply to an individual that might seem logical, that might seem hard to defend the alternative of, is worth considering in the context of the entire population of poor judgments and bad statements. Yeah, I know that that's very helpful because the, the, you're right. What matters is the culture is that when this becomes so embedded as a norm, it goes from individual cases to social norm and therefore you cannot go away from that. That's a really wonderful point. I thought about, just to go back to your thing about trans, by the way, and you said, you know, I feel differently than quite a lot of people in some, in, you know, from my political views who align in, in general. It made me think about the word for 
Hebrews from the you know Ivrim. So we are, and the word ever, the, the root, means to cross over. So Jews are people who cross over. We crossed, you know, initially Abraham came and crossed over into the land of Israel. That's what, you know, it's our day we cross the seas. And in some ways we are disconcerting for people, it's a polite word, because we cross boundaries. We look like this, but we are actually like this. So you may look white and middle class in the suburb, but actually not that many other people who are white and middle class in the suburb start with the word Belson within two minutes. You know, it, and we yeah, cross over boundaries true. and we know what it's like to be on the other side of the boundary or the other yes. side of the fence. And we know it instinctively because it happened to us a second ago. So I was thinking there is an I for me, let alone the fact my first child is trans, but there is an identification with people who are disruptors or cross boundaries. And of yes. course, just read this article by Hannah Arendt about Jew as pariah a full-on argument and that one of the reasons people find Jews hard is because we do cross over so maybe that trans thing whereas mm. other people want stability and in a certain definition maybe that crossing over is intrinsic to what it means to be Jewish that's very interesting a very that. interesting thought no I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that before that that's very interesting but I everyone wants straw bright lines where we know exactly what we're doing and we know we know not to cross in political argument, you know, this argument's homophobic, this is transphobic, we, yeah. this makes people feel unsafe. Unfortunately, it's all a lot messier than that. Mm. And in truth, we, are, we have to balance a lot of different considerations. You know, we understand this because we've had this massive debate about anti-Semitism, right? Should somebody be allowed to be a member of the Labour Party when they believe in Rothschild Zionism, right? And what happens if they said, <laughs> what happens if they made that point once 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, like, Naz Shah, for example, completely repents of that view. What, what about that? What is the correct political position to take with people we feel have been anti-Semitic in the past or may be anti-Semitic in the future? And so the first point we know as Jews is we cannot possibly say nobody must be accountable for their completely anti-Semitic behavioural statement. That cannot be the position. So an element of counts. So we've accepted one of the first steps in the council argument. But I also hope we don't take the view that everybody's ignorant opinion or mistaken step so far is must be something that they must never be allowed to have ever expressed without, you can always take it into account in considering what you think of their character, but without them losing their professional responsibilities. That we know immediately there is a balance to be struck with these things and... So I, I've never been on the side of people who thought, well, cancelling is just a terrible idea that's completely totalitarian because it's a form of accountability for people's statements and their, yes. their views about others, which we use and which we rely on. But I also am of the view, I am a bit worried about the sort of extent in which people are expected to show perfection in you know the adherence to social norms, which people just don't. And they won't. Yeah. No, they won't. And they shouldn't. Not in a free NAS, society. Yeah. Yeah, when you can make mistakes. The NAS example is a good example because I was very, very involved with... She came to me and she said, help. So first of all, she said help. She went to a Jewish ma- you know, woman who's full on, that's me, to talk it through. We together thought about how to write an apology where she detailed what she did wrong. And then she went out and she did the work. 
She went to synagogues. I mean, you know, well done her. Yeah. And I think that's I what an apology impressed. looks. Yeah, no, she did really brilliant. And it was exactly the same time as Ken Livingstone. So obviously it was in juxtaposition. The thing also about mistake, it comes back to what you were saying before about Jews. If around 3% of the country are anti-Semitic, but 30% make a mistake, when someone says to you, like my neighbour said to me the other day, you know, oh, it's good, Laura, you want to go into business because I'm finishing my job, because Jews should you, be good at that because you're Jewish. I was like, oi, right. come on a minute. And then he went, oops. And you are allowed to say oops. He's a great yeah, yeah. guy and completely, I mean, you know, wonderful, not anti-Semitic at all. I mean, for lots of different reasons, I know that. But you are, you know, and 30% of the country do say oops. And they say tropes about, so I think uh, I think the mistake thing. But I think the key for what you've said that I've really, really learned from is this thing about culture. When a, something starts to be repeated, so in Jewish law, you have custom and law. When something is done three times, it moves from Jewish custom to Jewish law by being done. And there's something about repetition of a habit that becomes a culture. And that's why I I think that's the the gift you've just given me. Thank you. So really, your book could be called Everything is Messy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, of course, that is definitely part of my argument. Yeah. No, I love it. That's brilliant. Thank you very, very much. It's been... In this time when we are apart quite a bit, it is like sitting with having a cup of tea with you. Right. And I'm really grateful for that. And I I am going to remind people listening to this that your book is out now. Well, thank you. Uh, While I'm on, let let me also say thank you to you because... Your leadership is one of the things that sustains our community. And I know, you know, as a, as a liberal Jew, but I'm sure I speak for a lot of other reform and liberal Jews, it's very valuable to have someone who's also articulate as you, as part of this community's leadership, and we've benefited a lot from it. So it was a pleasure to come on your podcast, if merely to be able to finish like that. Right. I'm, I'm now f- Thank you. I'm flawed. I am flawed. I'm turning off the recorder. 